The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. Happy uh, Labor Day weekend, everybody. I hope you're having a great weekend and I've got some uh, exciting plans uh, for, for the weekend. Me, I'm, uh, I'm off to Europe uh, tomorrow. I'm off for a speaking, uh, speaking tour of, uh, of Europe, going to be in a bunch of uh, different countries, some you might have not even heard of. Uh, it, it should be interesting. And uh, I'll actually be doing some of the shows from Europe. So, um, you know, you'll hear on some of my experiences uh, traveling over there. I'm hoping uh, if, you know, if internet, if the internet gods are with us, then we should have a show from uh, Baku, Azerbaijan, uh, which should be really interesting. Uh, my first time ever there in, in Baku. So, uh, uh, and uh, the following week, hopefully will be from, um, from Geneva, Switzerland. So uh, a little bit more I guess uh, civilized. I don't know if, if it's politically correct to say that, but uh, but yeah, I think I think legitimately we can say that. All right, so um, I'm off. I'm off on an airplane uh, starting uh, today. Actually, after the show, um, I'm uh, packing up, finishing up all my packing, and uh, off I go. I'll be in Europe three weeks and in uh, New York for one week. And I'll be giving talks and doing events in uh, in all those places, just in case we have some European listeners. If you're in London or Tbilisi or Baku, Paris, Geneva, Copenhagen, or Kiev, I'm doing events in any one of, in 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 all of those places. Uh, not Germany this time, so any one of those places. Uh, hopefully, uh, it, you know you can uh, you can easily find information about uh, the different talks. It's on my Facebook page. Just go to uh, facebook.com at ybrook. I'll also be posting stuff on Twitter. That's Yaron Brook Y A R O N Brook uh, on Twitter, and uh, so ybrook Y B R O O K on Facebook. And uh, you should be able to access all the events there. You can also get it at einrand.com org slash events ironman.org slash events there'll be a listing of all the events i'll be doing from uh, my first event in london to i think i'm doing four events in tbilisi all the way to the last event in uh, in kiev and then in new york i will be uh, doing a debate at yale which i think is going to be live streamed so hopefully uh you'll be able to to to, to catch that it's uh, I'll, I'll post on facebook and twitter information about the live debate uh, at, at Yale that'll be at the end of September, towards the end of September, I think the 27th of September. And then the Ayn Rand Institute hosts an Atlas Shrugged uh, celebration dinner uh, every year, and this, uh, this year it's on the 28th of September at the uh, St. Regis Hotel in New York City. You're all invited. It, it costs. It's a, it's a charity fundraiser. So it costs some money, but you can, uh, you can find that by going again to the Ayn Rand Institute website and looking at the events or by searching, uh, Atlas Shrugged Revolution Dinner on, um, on, on Google and, uh, you will find the registration and everything else. So, uh, a lot going on in the next four weeks. I'm busy as hell and, uh, you know, all over the place, all over the world and, uh, but I'll be broadcasting from there. So uh, 
broadcasting from, as I said, Baku, uh, Geneva, and uh, and uh, one from uh, from New York. So um, I guess let's get on with the show. We'll, we'll, we'll see kind of what topics uh, come up uh, while I'm traveling. And, uh, you know, I'll give you some of my experiences uh, from being on the road and some of the things going on in these uh, distant countries, distant places that, uh, I, you know, some of them, uh, Baku I've never been to, Azerbaijan I've never been to, uh, Tbilisi I've been to before, but I've only been once. It should be interesting. Geneva is not a place I've spent a lot of time with in, so um, it should be interesting. And I've never really, I've given one talk in, in Paris, but I've, I've never really done any kind of major events in Paris. So Paris should be interesting just in terms of that. And then we've got a major free speech event in Copenhagen with uh, Fleming Rose that I'm doing. Uh, Fleming Rose is the guy who published the Danish cartoons in 2005, sparked all those riots all over the world. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, free speech and how, how to live, how, how, how we structure societies in a world where people um, get offended by much of what's being said. And... Uh, you know, what's, what's the right approach in a multicultural world? Um, what are the principles by which we can survive and thrive? What are the principles by which we can live, survive, and thrive? So uh, that, that should be fascinating. That's in Copenhagen at, at the Parliament. And then I'll be in Kiev doing a couple of things, as I said, one, one of which is a, uh, a talk for students, and the other um, is I'm, I'm teaching a class, three-hour class, in the executive MBA program at the Kiev Business School, three hours of, um, you know, almost like a radio show, but teaching these relatively senior executives, uh, Ukrainian executives uh, in, in business in Ukraine. That should be, that should be, um, that should be a, a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. So, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to a great trip and uh, hopefully, I'll fill you in as the trip as the trip goes along. Um, and uh, all right, all right. Let's start today with a discussion Oops. about uh, what's going on in North Korea. Obviously, that's in the news. That's in the headlines. We, we've got a lot, uh, a lot going on in terms of. Um, you know, they, they, they detonated another nuclear nuclear bomb. Uh, they claim it's a hydrogen bomb. I've read some analysis from experts that suggest, no, it's, it's only an atomic bomb. It is, a, um, it is a powerful atomic bomb. It's more powerful than the one that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And not quite, uh, probably uh, 10 times more powerful than the bombs that they uh, tried uh, before, so it's it's a, a, a very substantial increase over uh, previously, and that we can measure because we can measure the seismic reactions of the of the test. So we know they actually did uh, explode an atomic bomb; that it actually happened. And uh, you know the other claims that the experts are making again, hard to verify, hard to tell if they know what they're talking about, is that they do have the technology now to put a bomb on a tip of a ICBM of a missile. And launch such a missile, if not hit California, certainly probably hit Alaska, Tokyo, and certainly hit South Korea. So uh, our allies, uh, countries that we have defense agreements with uh, under threat of nuclear attack from uh, North Korea, and so is the United States. I mean, we, we think that California is out of range, but 
who knows? Who knows what they actually have? Now, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute because I'm always suspicious about claims of technology from these authoritarian regimes. My experience, my experience with um, weapons from the old Soviet Union was that they were pathetic, that they were always hyped as being cutting edge, best, of, best in the world, very, very dangerous, better than what the West has, and they always turned out to be pathetic. And I suspect that the weapons that North Korea has are pretty pathetic. I suspect that the missile technology is far more primitive than what they claim or what even the experts claim. Experts always overestimate the power of our enemies. Um, but I want to do, I want to talk, uh, we're going to take a break in a little bit. But uh, after the break, what I want to do is I want to talk you through what I think, you know, you're getting, we're getting very little information about what, what, other military options that the United States actually has <clears throat> in North Korea. And it's really fascinating to me because in the era of soundbite television, in the era of Fox and CNN and quick and three-minute interviews and stuff, you can't really get into what a military campaign in North Korea would look like, what are the risks, uh, what can be achieved, what are the dangers, which is unfortunate because I think most Americans' experience with war uh, recently is uh, is Iraq or, or the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, Afghanistan, which are very, very different types of wars than what you would have to engage in in North Korea. And the risks and the threats are very different, and yet Americans don't know it. And yet they're, they're continuously being surveyed, should we go to war with North Korea? But they have no clue. They're ignorant. And I suspect, without knowing all of you, that most of you are, are ignorant about the situation in North Korea, unless you've read some in-depth articles unless you've invested some time in actually examining and evaluating what's going on, it's very hard to tell what's going on in, uh, in North Korea. So what I want to do, we're going to take a, a quick break right now. What I want to do when we get back to the break is break it down for you a little bit, right? I'm not going to go into a, a million details, and I'm not an expert uh, uh, you know, on this. I've, I've read my fair share of in-depth articles. I know a little bit about military operations, but I certainly am no uh, expert on North Korea and don't have any uh, specialized intelligence information uh, about North Korea. But, but there's some obvious things that are not being mentioned, that I'm not seeing, that need to be addressed, that need to be talked about, and uh, we will do that after this break. You're listening to Iran Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network, and we'll be back soon. Best-selling author, prolific media contributor, PhD in finance. This is the Yaron Brook Show, the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Yaron Brook Show. All right, so we're talking about North Korea, and we're talking about you know they just uh, they just did this uh, 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 another test of their nuclear capabilities. They blew up a weapon, and um, so uh, and it was powerful, more powerful than the previous ones they've done. So they they clearly have the capacity uh, to blow up a nuclear device. Uh, still a question about whether they can put it onto a missile. Uh, but they, they certainly have the missiles. Uh, they, they flew a missile last week over within in Japanese airspace over Japan. And uh, they certainly have uh, 
the capacity to, you know, so that we don't know if they have the capacity to put it on a missile. They have missile capacity, they have nuclear bombs. Can they merge them? But that's just a matter of time. If they don't have it yet, they will have it. And, and the real question is still, what if anything should the United States do? And, 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 um, let's, let, let's set up, let's set this up first in terms of the challenges that we face. Then I want to talk about how we got into this situation because it's, it's, it's pathetic that we're even facing this situation. And then uh, what actually can be done. So let's start by the fact that South Korea, which is, uh, you know, part of uh, what I would consider the Western world, a uh, rich, uh, relatively free country, and that is an ally of the United States. We actually have troops in South Korea, and you could argue whether that's justifiable or not. I would say not, but, but we have troops there. We have a defense alliance with them. But South Korea is the largest city, Seoul, South Korea. I was actually there uh, this last spring in June. I was in Seoul. Seoul, South Korea is a, is a, is a massive city of, of millions and millions of people. And um, Seoul, South Korea is obviously the largest city in South Korea. It is uh, full of uh, skyscrapers and condo buildings and houses and homes and, and just, it just millions and millions of people live there. Seoul is 25 miles from the border, basically 25 miles from North Korean artillery. In addition uh, to that, North Korea's artillery is then 25, is set up depth-wise, 25 miles deep into North Korean territory. So there's some artillery right there on the border, some artillery a few miles back, all the way back to 25 miles. And they have thousands of pieces of artillery, thousands of pieces of artillery, all facing Seoul, all that can reach Seoul. So let's say we decided to take out the, the, uh, the nuclear capabilities of the North Koreans. And let's say we could take out the North, the, the, which is a question. I have no idea if we can or cannot. My assumption is we, you could certainly with a nuke. But uh, maybe with bunker buster bombs, you could get most of their nukes and you could destroy them. But let's let's say let's say you could do that. You could take uh, the estimate is they have thirty bombs. Let's say you could take all thirty bombs out. Then you've got to deal with artillery because artillery immediately is turned on, and it would flatten Seoul. You would have hundreds of thousands of casualties. Hundreds of thousands of casualties. Now, I, I'm, I'm making some assumptions here. One assumption is that the artillery works, and, and I'll get to that. But, but assuming the artillery works, and you have to make that assumption at least initially, hundreds of thousands of casualties on the ground in Seoul, maybe into the millions, given the firepower that North Korea has, even without its nuclear weapons, all targeted at this major city, a city that does not have... Uh, uh, expansive bomb shelters that does not have the capability to shield millions of people. And you're not a city you're not going to evacuate in advance of a U.S. strike. Uh, there is, there's no clear path um, given that. So you've got this. Now, some would say, well, why doesn't the U.S. take out the artillery? Well, one, because there's so much of it. There's just such a huge quantity of that artillery. Second is that all over North Korea, uh, but particularly along the border, the North Koreans have what is called a, um, 
it's a it's a ground to air missile protection, something like uh, the Russian equivalent of uh, what's called the S three hundred, or what in the uh, the U.S. version is called the Patriot system. These are very sophisticated systems that are supposed to knock airplanes out of the sky, that make it extraordinarily difficult to fly uh, to fly missions and to take out the actual artillery that is that is pointed at Seoul, South Korea. So you've got you've got a real problem here, right? They've already got a bomb, right? They've already got a bomb. Um, they've got thousands of artillery pieces pointing at your major city. I don't know that we know where all the bombs are. They also have, uh, you know, they have an air defense system that is based on, you know, Soviet technology, uh, world class or, or, or top of the line. And it's difficult to neutralize all of that all at once. So any attack by the U.S. on North Korea is going to have to assume massive tens, if not hundreds of thousands of casualties on the South Korean side. And the question, of course, is what is South Korea's view of this? I mean, we would be, uh, they are an ally. You, we would supposedly be coordinating all of this with the South Koreans. They are the most likely people to, uh, to, to feel the brunt of this. So we're in a situation where it really is disastrous. Now you could imagine you could you could come up with military scenarios that uh, that could deal with this at least to some extent. Uh, hugely risky, and I still think the South Koreans would have to uh, sign off on it. But you would have to take into account. You would have to assess whether these uh, whether the risks associated with these scenarios justify. Um, you know, or whether, whether the, the, the benefits of these scenarios justify the risk. And so even if, even if, and, and of course you, you're always, the other risk is that China gets involved. But let's assume, let's put China aside. Let's assume China doesn't really want to get involved and doesn't want this. Um, what do you do? What do you do? All right. So I, when I get back, I want to talk about a little bit about, you know, some scenarios that might be possible. Um, to execute on that, but would be extraordinarily difficult. What some alternatives in terms of what one would do are, and then finally, I want to talk about how we got into this mess. What can what we can learn from it, and how do we prevent getting into a mess like this in the future? Now, I'm pretty convinced that we have learned nothing from it. I'm pretty convinced that we will do nothing about what what is happening, or that we do the wrong things, but. You know, that's where we are. So, uh, I, you know, we certainly need to think about this as it applies to Iran. Uh, we certainly need to think about this uh, as it applies to other countries that might at some point develop these kind of capabilities and, and pose this kind of risk. All right. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about this. You can call in 888-900-3393 if you have an opinion about North Korea. You're listening to the Iran Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network, and you can hear us here live every Sunday. You're on Brooke on the Blaze Radio Network.
Yaron Brook Show. All right, so we're talking about North Korea, and we're talking about their nuclear capabilities. We're talking about what they could do to South Korea, whether they can hit the United States or not. I think at this point is mostly speculation. They could probably hit Japan, although how accurate their missiles are and, and the actual ability to hit Japan is, again, questionable. What they certainly can do is devastate South Korea. I mean, devastate South Korea. And look, I mean, my temptation is always to say, if there's a war in some godforsaken place across on the other side of the globe is, let it happen. It's not a risk to the United States. If they want to fight it out, let them fight it out. I believe that the United States military should only be used, only be used, when the U.S. is threatened, when the lives and property of Americans are threatened. I don't believe in going out and building democracies. I don't believe in going out and defending democracies. I don't think we should be in NATO. I don't think we should be defending Eastern Europe right now or Western Europe. And I ultimately do not think we should be in South Korea or Japan. I think those countries are rich enough to be able to afford their own militaries. This is the one thing Donald Trump said on the campaign trail that I actually agreed with. They're rich enough to defend themselves. They're rich enough to build themselves navies and armies and, and capabilities to defend themselves. Americans shouldn't die so that Japan can stay free. Sorry. But we have treaties. We have defense agreements. We have committed certain things. Whether I agree with them or not, they are in existence today. We cannot ignore the fact that we have a defense agreement with Japan and South Korea. We cannot just launch into a, into a war with North Korea or not launch into a war with North Korea. We can't make these decisions unilaterally at this point because we have agreements. Now, we could withdraw from those agreements, and I think we should, but I don't think we should do it right now because if we do right now, that would be perceived strongly as a sign of weakness by the North Koreans, and weakness is always leads to aggression. So uh, if they actually thought we were weak, they would come after us. And I don't want us to be and be perceived as weak. So I think we need to resolve in one way the North Korean situation and then tell the South Koreans and the, North, and, and the Japanese that they, over the next, let's say, five years, ten years, we undo the treaty and that they have to build up their own militaries to defend themselves. Again, rich countries, they have enough population. You know, if you compare South Korea to North Korea, uh, South Korea is a much larger population and much, much, much richer. Much richer. Do you know, just as an aside, that at the end of the Korean War, end of the Korean War, South Korea was poorer than North Korea. South Korea was poorer than North Korea. So they would do, I mean, they were as poor as any, as, as an African country is today. And today, they are, you know, a million times, you know, not a million times, but, you know, thousands of times richer than, uh, than the North Koreans. It's, it really is unbelievable, the difference. And if you want an illustration of the, of the differences between capitalism, even tried on a minute scale like it was in South Korea, and, um, and, and communism, then you've got to write down a peninsula. It, it's, it's truly unbelievable why anybody, why not everybody sees it and sees the, how obvious it is. All right. So let's, let's dream up some scenarios for an actual military action just for fun. Uh, in, uh, so remember, I, I, you know, my primary concern is that the defense, 
is what I see as the main role of the United States, which is to protect the individual rights of Americans. Now, because we have these defense treaties, you have to protect South Koreans as well. That That's in the treaty. So as long as we have it, we have to do it. So how would you avoid massive civilian casualties in South Korea? So I would I would do it this way. And again, I'm not proposing this because I think at the end of the day, it's too soon for military action given where we are today. I would do this. You would have to have a, a very sophisticated joint attack, and you would have to do this stealthily, which is hard. Uh, you would have to build up the forces over time, which is hard because the North Koreans monitor everything we do. But you would have to engage in a massive first strike that was so devastating that the North Koreans couldn't respond. And then you would rely on the fact that the North Koreans' weapons and technology and infrastructure probably would collapse. It probably would not be able to sustain the kind of damage that everybody predicts because it's just built in North Korea or in the Soviet Union, or in Russia or whatever. It's, it's, it's just not very good. So you would have to, you would have to launch, I think, a three-prong attack. One, you would have to take out the North Korean leadership, all of them, starting from the top down. Now, notice that America does not do that anymore. There's actually, I think, a, a, a bill that was passed in the 70s that prohibits the United States from targeting, uh, from targeting uh, the uh, leaders of other countries. So I don't know if that's even legal. Maybe we'd have to change the law. But target the entire leadership structure from the, 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 the dictator on down to the generals, to his cousins and nephews and uncles, and and uh, and their families, you just you'd you'd have to wipe them out. You'd have to do it in such a way that you know the entire leadership structure was as much of it was wiped out. Now some would survive, and because they're probably spread out and they're probably so you'd have to have great intelligence on where they are, where they live, uh, and you would have to do it. Now I, I would probably you would probably have to put some special forces on the ground to achieve some of this. You would have to probably work with special forces from South Korea to do this. Um, who know the language and who can blend into the population there. It would not be easy, but it is doable. Uh, special forces and, and, uh, and an airstrike combined to, to basically just crush the entire leadership. At the same time, you would have to launch a devastating attack on whatever nuclear facilities you thought that these people had, but it would have to be timed perfectly so that you killed the leadership just a little before you launched this attack so they could not order a counter-strike. And at the same time, now luckily these are different types of bombers, these are different types of planes that would be engaged. You would have to launch a massive, massive attack on the artillery uh, along the uh, South Korean border. And this would have to be a, mainly from the air, but also you would have to then invade with ground troops. And I assume that the primary ground troops would have to be South Korean. There's some American troops there, but just not enough. Now, all of this would have to be negotiated, in my view, in advance, or, 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 or somehow you would have to cut a deal with the Chinese not to intervene. Now, the way to cut a deal with the Chinese not to intervene, this is how I would do it. Um, I would guarantee to them that when it is over, right, when it is over, the United States will rescind the defense treaty with South Korea and withdraw all troops and American weapons from the South, from the Korean Peninsula. 
So you want the reunification, the, the uni unification of Korea, but you don't want it to be perceived by the Chinese as a threat. And therefore, the United States need to be out of there. And that, that would move us towards a world which I think is better, where the United States is not guarantee, guaranteeing the security of these countries. At the same time, you tell the Chinese you'll do the same thing with Japan. That will, I think, uh, uh, if they believed us, I think that would guarantee that the Chinese not intervene. All right. So that would be my war scenario, right? As as a uh, you know, as a amateur former uh, former first sergeant in the Israeli military intelligence, for whatever that's worth, and uh, someone a student of history and a student of war, uh, that would be how I would do it. I still think you would you would have to take significant casualties uh, of civilians. I'm not talking about military casualties. I think I, I also think you could wipe out the North Korean uh, military very quickly. I think those weapons are old. I don't think they're functional. I think the, the soldiers are unmotivated. What exactly are they dying for? I think most of them would run. Most of them would surrender. I think it could be quick. I think it could be devastating. And I think you would win. All right? I think you would win. Um, I would not ask anybody's permission. I would not take this to the United Nations. The only country I would have any discussions with is China, and, and probably only after I started bombing, and only to guarantee to them that I would leave, that I would not, that the treaties would be gone, and that Korea would be on its own after this threat was taken care of. That would be my military strategy. I'm sure there are going to be uh, military strategists out there who uh, critique it. And of course, you can critique it if you disagree with me, 888-900-3393. Now, when I come back, I want to talk about why I don't think that's what we should do, uh, even though it's doable. I also want to talk about how we got into this situation. Uh, not a lot of time to cover all that, but we are going to try. You're listening to your own book show on the Blaze Radio Network, and we'll be back after this break. Israeli military veteran and radical for capitalism. It's the Yaron Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Ron Brook Show, the only place where you actually get facts and analysis and not just superficial, quick, uh, sound-bitey political commentary. I'm not talking about, you know, some people in the chat. Are saying, I'm not talking about appeasing the Chinese. Nothing about appeasing the Chinese. Let them know that they shouldn't intervene. You don't want to get into a, a, a nuclear standoff with the Chinese that they shouldn't intervene, and that you are doing these things in American self-interest. You're going to crush the North Koreans, and then you're going to leave, and leave it to the South Koreans and to Japan to defend itself. That is where I want to be anyway. So it's not a matter of appeasement. It's a matter of moving in the most rational way to where we should be anyway. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think any of this is going to happen, because I don't think... Uh, I don't think our military, our commanders, I don't think our military, um, and I, I don't think uh, uh, any any of the people, uh, you know, involved today in decision-making in the United States and the president down have the courage, the courage to actually do this or have the, the brains or the knowledge or the, or the know-how to do it. Because, 
you know, the sore fate of civilian casualties and the full fate of not upsetting anybody and the sore fate of the, the consequences. They're not willing to actually do anything. And, 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 and the fact is, it's a very risky, it's a very risky scenario. So here's an alternative. I still don't think they'll do the alternative, but here's my alternative to this. My alternative would be to prepare for such an attack, to put the aircraft carriers in place, to put the bombers in place, to put uh, everything you need in place. Um, and then every time the North Koreans launch anything, you knock it down. Uh, so we should build up our air defense systems. We should build up our anti-missile systems. And we should knock down everything that they put up and knock it down faster than anybody else could. Right? Faster than anyone else could. And um, let the North Koreans know that you now have the capacity to destroy them. Let the North Koreans know that the first target is the leadership and that if they actually start shelling South Korea or start anything like that, start a war, that they will be devastated instantaneously, quickly, effectively. And uh, if you do that, if you, if you put all the resources and start knocking down their missiles, maybe you have a chance. Now, in addition, you've got to cut them off completely. I, I don't see why we don't have a naval blockade of North Korea, uh, why we don't we start searching ships before they get there. Uh, one of the reasons to do that is the danger of them exporting their nuclear missiles and nuclear technology. We know they worked with Syrians to try to develop a nuclear bomb. That's what the Israelis took out a few years ago, was the plant that the North Koreans and Syrians were building together. But part of that is shipping materials out. We've we got to stop that. You've got to starve them. So I would, I would try anything short of war because I think war – um, in this case, is so, so, so risky. And uh, the fact is, you know, I don't think that the South Koreans are going to launch a nuclear attack on the United States, but I don't want to put a, a crazy man in a position where he has the capability of blackmailing us, which is what I think he would do. And, and most presidents of the United States would fold under such blackmail. So I, I don't trust the political leaders. Let me just say quickly how we got here. We really got here by, by, because of the mistakes made during the Korean War. The biggest mistake during the Korean War was intervening in it. What did the United States have to go to Korea for? This was a United Nations war. We should never get involved in the United Nations war. We should have troops affiliated with the United Nations. We should never, ever have gone. And then we wouldn't have troops there. And then South Korea, unfortunately, would have probably be ca uh, captured by the communists. It would be one big communist country, and it would probably be safer for us to actually defend ourselves against a threat coming from them rather than have. Now, it's sad for South Koreans, but that's not our job. Our job is not to defend South Koreans. Our job is not to enhance South Korea. Now, once we went into the Korean War, the job of the military was to win it. And, of course, there... Truman was the coward. Uh, Truman refused to listen to um, General MacArthur on how to win that war. That war was winnable. Uh, it might have required use of nuclear weapons, but it was winnable. And then you would have had an entire Korean peninsula that was free. So either of those two scenarios were better than what we got, right, from an American perspective, not from a Korean perspective. Korean perspective, certainly the second scenario is much better. But we should have never been in that war. 
any more than we should have been in the Vietnam War. You know, it's sad if communism would have taken over all Korea, but we would have survived just like America survived the fact that at the end of the day, all of Vietnam was taken over by communists. You know, not pleasant, not nice, but survivable. And then, of course, we've appeased the North Koreans over and over and over again before they had nukes and allowed them to develop them. And that is the great tragedy from Clinton to Obama. They failed. All right, you're listening to the Iran Brooks Show. We'll be back after this news break. You're listening to the Iran Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brook Show starts now. All right, so we're talking about, we've been talking about North Korea. I want to I spend maybe a few minutes here just wrapping up some things on North Korea. And then uh, after the next break, uh, we're going to switch topics and talk about another set of uh, authoritarians, uh, but this one domestic called Antifa. So let's let's just wrap up a few, clean up a few things about North Korea. Let's be clear. My view is that the only role of the American military is to protect America. It's to protect the lives and property of Americans. I don't believe engaging in wars overseas in order to stop the spread of communism, in order to stop the spread of fill in the blank. If somebody's a threat to the United States, a real threat, then crush them, destroy them. Don't fight proxy wars. I, so I'm against the one Korea. It should have never happened. That peninsula, unfortunately, would have become all communist. But Soviets, Vietnam is, is that way today. And Vietnam is not a threat to the United States. Uh, so who knows what would have happened? Who knows? You probably wouldn't have had this particular family ruling over the entire Korea. They would have been, it, it's a bigger, more, more complicated story if that would have happened. If you go to war, win it. Right. So if you go to war in Korea, which we did in the in uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, win it, whatever it takes, win it. That would have created a peninsula that was all free. That would it wouldn't have been a problem. So all these problems are problems of history of not winning wars. And I would argue that today the threat that Iran poses to the United States and if it ever develops nuclear weapons and then uses them to blackmail the United States, then we will go back and say, that it was uh, the, the lack, the, the fact that the United States did not respond to the taking of its embassy in 1979. It was the fact that the United States let the Iranian off the hook post 9-11. It's the fact that the United States has not dealt with Iran over and over and over again when it needed dealing with that will lead to the negative outcome maybe decades from now. Who knows? Hopefully not. Hopefully there'll be an internal revolution in Iran and everything will be settled. But there is a certain likelihood that that doesn't happen, that really, really bad stuff comes out of Iran because of our weakness, because of our weakness over all these decades of not dealing with a real viable threat and our winning wars when we engage with them. We've been at war with Iran since 1979. The taking of our of of embassy is a war. All right. In North Korea, somebody asked, would you do, how would you deal with the Russians? I don't deal with the Russians. The Russians are not going to intervene. Russia is too weak 
People think of Russia as strong. Russia is weak and poor. Russia does not have the military capability to, to intervene. And uh, it, 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 is, it is busy in Ukraine. It has an Islamist threat. Russia has its hands full. I mean, Putin plays a... I wouldn't want to play poker with the guy because he over... You know, he, he has a very weak hand. And yet everybody in the world is terrified of him in spite of his very weak hand. So I'm not worried about... I'm much more worried about China. But again, I wouldn't appease China. I would just notify them that this is what's going to happen. So... Uh, and in terms of trade, I would blockade. I would do everything. Any company that trades with them, I would do no business with. That would hurt the Chinese, but I would not stop all trade with China because of what's going on with North Korea. I would target it to specific organizations, specific entities. And I'm going to have to do a show about trade with China and how to deal with trade with China because there's a lot of issues with trade with China. On the one hand, it is a great win-win. On the other hand, there are things that you have to address when you're dealing with the Chinese, and the, the, the one is North Korea, and second is uh, the infringement of property rights, of intellectual property rights. So you have to have a policy, you have to have a strategy of dealing with the Chinese with regard to property rights, intellectual property rights, and with regard to North Korea, which would limit how much trade you did with them. All right, that's all I really want to talk about North Korea. At the end of the day, I, I, you know, this is going to be in the headlines a lot, but the discussion uh, mostly is going to be pretty superficial and stupid. So I wanted to give you a little bit of background. Hopefully you are better educated so you can now better assess what is going on uh, with regard to South, South Korea and North Korea and what are America's true interests. Uh, remember that the weapons of bad guys are, are, are almost always less efficient and less effective than what is believed. Maybe... Uh, you know, with the exception of uh, the Nazis during World War II, and even there, they ultimately failed. So um, I'm not overly worried about North Korea, even though I live in Southern California, which is supposed to be the target of the nuclear bomb. And by the way, nuclear war is always is, is a disaster. So to the extent, uh, you know, millions and millions of people would die on our side if you got into a real exchange. That's why you have to, in whatever war you engage in, destroy nuclear capabilities first. That has to be the primary priority. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the threat from within, Antifa. You're listening to your Ron Brooks show on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back. PhD, author, media contributor. This is the Yaron Brooks show. The Blaze Radio Network. listening to the Yaron Brooks show. All right, so um, I think that's enough on North Korea. I want to talk about Antifa. Antifa is a so-called anti-fascist um, uh, movement uh, that has grown significantly. It's been around for quite a long time. It actually has uh, uh, hooks back into uh, the 1920s and 30s uh, in Europe. It, it was uh, part of kind of the punk rock scene uh, during the 1980s. 
it, there was then part of the anti-globalization riots and, and uh, during the uh, early 2000s. And uh, if you remember uh, when they rioted in Seattle and damage they caused there. But it, it, at least in the United States, it has grown significantly in the um, uh, since uh, Donald Trump was elected. There's, there's no question if you look at traffic, if you look at uh, membership, if you look at their activity on campuses and uh, everywhere else, they have grown. And they've capitalized over the rise over the last uh, couple of decades of a, a hard left, of a uh, some people call alt-left, hard left, whatever you want to call it, anti-capitalist, anti-American, anti-individualistic, pro-racist, collectivist, tribalist uh, kind of left, uh, and, and a very, very, very much anti-free speech left. Uh, and have capitalized on that. And, and the next step, of course, for anti-free speech left is to promote violence in the name of silencing uh, what they call offensive speech. So you saw articles in the New York Times and elsewhere, uh, op-eds, not articles, editorials by, by university professors claiming that speech is violence. I, I mean, think about it. You, you could make that claim, right? Speech offends that offense causes you to have, I don't know, uh, to cause you to be depressed, and that has physical consequences, and therefore speech is violence, and speech must be suppressed, just like violence is suppressed. Now, which speech, who gets to determine what's offensive, what is hate? Well, of course, the powers to be, the authorities, get to decide all of that uh, uh, for us. But in the meantime, since the authorities are not doing that, since the, the authorities are not doing that, since uh, the universities are not doing that, I mean, all these, uh, all these people are allowed to speak on campuses um, and, 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 uh, and voice their, their opinions, and universities are not doing much about it, and uh, the government is not doing anything about it, and the police are not silencing all these people who are speaking. Uh, yeah, I mean, even neo-Nazis are speaking and demonstrating and have websites and all this stuff. Then somebody has to somebody has to do something about this. This is all wrong. This is unjust. This is immoral. This is evil incarnate. And therefore, what you need is Antifa to go around defending us, protecting us from speech that is violence, that is offensive, that is um, that is uh, you know the equivalent of violence. And uh, the Antifa are always going to say. As long as they, and they have an intellectual support, they're always going to say, look, all we're doing is self-defense. All we're doing is protecting ourselves from the things those people over there are saying. Because what they're saying is so disgusting, it's so offensive, it is violent. So our violence is not initiation of force. Our violence is self-defense. And you're not against self-defense. None of us are against self-defense. We're all for self-defense. We believe violence is okay in self-defense. So therefore, you cannot come after us, say Antifa, because we're just acting in self-defense and we're filling in. We're filling in for the deficiencies of the police, for the deficiencies of the legal system, for the deficiencies of our universities, for the fact that we're way too tolerant of violence from the so-called right. We're way too tolerant of violence from the so-called right and speech is violence, therefore, when they speak, we should not be tolerant of it. We should shut them down. We should silence them. So Antifa views itself 
is very much as a vigilante group. People out there have committed crimes. Those crimes are speech crimes. And it's the Antifa's job. It's Antifa's responsibility. It's Antifa's mission to bring justice to the world and to silence those who use speech in violent ways. How did I do? I, I mean, that was a pretty good, that was pretty good defense of Antifa, right? Yeah, and, and, and that's the problem. The problem is there's almost nobody out there who can argue against them. And, and that's the problem that the left faces. I think many people on the left are very uncomfortable with Antifa. And you see it in articles in the New York Times and in, uh, in Atlantic Magazine and other places where they're clearly, they're clearly uncomfortable with this. So, for example, there was a, a, an article on the rise of the violent left on the Atlantic. Uh, and and it was, it's a very good article. It's, it's worth reading. And he documents the violence. And he's a lefty. It's clear he's a lefty. But can he really argue with them? Can he really make the case of why free speech is a value? And unless you can, unless you can, unless you can argue that free that speech is never violence, unless it's incitement or fraud, right? There's, there's specific cases which the law already recognizes where speech morphs into action, morphs into violence. But these object have to be objectively defended, which is not easy. So it's very difficult to argue against them. Now, why is it important to argue against them? Not because you can convince any of them, but because the 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 um, you know the, the people who are most consistent with the point of view ultimately shape the intellectual culture. They actually start causing people to gravitate in their direction. They actually shift the middle in their direction. They shift the entire argument in their direction. And the outcome of Antifa will be, this is my prediction, will be, if not challenged, if not challenged philosophically and intellectually, put aside the police response, which we'll get to. But if it's not challenged intellectually and philosophically, then their view will become legitimate. And if their view becomes legitimate, what we will get is what we already have to some extent in Europe. We will get hate speech laws. And it won't be Antifa shutting down speeches. It won't be Antifa shutting down certain points of view. It'll be the police enforcing hate speech laws. But it's coming. You know it's coming. Europe has it already. And Europe usually, you know, uh, given the trends in the United States, Europe is where we're heading. So the First Amendment cannot stand up to a systematic, unopposed, philosophical, intellectual attack. It cannot. And who defends the First Amendment? A bunch of conservatives who often cannot make the argument for free speech. Cannot make the argument, philosophical, intellectual argument, for why free speech is an absolute, for why speech is never, ever, ever violence, except when it's not speech, when it is violence. Opinion cannot be violence. Incitement, fraud, those are the, those are what, 
constitute violence. It's when, when, you know, action is demanded. Action is the consequence. So the speech becomes action. But that is the kind of intellectual philosophical defense that needs to be taken. You know, that's, for example, what at the Ayn Rand Institute we are doing in engaging in a philosophical, intellectual defense of free speech, because without it, free speech will fall, and Antifa will win. And that is the goal. The goal is to move, you know, what we call, in sports what they call, to move the goalposts, to move the discussion, to move the agenda. And they're winning with that because, you know, A, because they've got the media on their side, and because the, the, the so-called right has almost no arguments against them. You know, so, so the discussion today is boiling down to Antifa versus the neo-Nazis. That's not a discussion. That's ridiculous. Where is the intellectual right arguing against Antifa? Arguing against their points that they are making about speech. That's the essence. And that's why, you know, I'm supportive of anybody today fighting for free speech even if I disagree with them on a lot of other things. Free speech is the issue of our time. Free speech is the issue we must protect, we must defend, we must fight for right now because it's under attack both from right and from left. And I've talked about this a lot, about how Donald Trump is an attack on free speech. Um, but the right has always been weak on free speech. The real attack is coming now from the left, which traditionally has been pro-free speech. And now it just flipped. So now who's for free speech, really? Almost nobody. Almost nobody. I, you know, just to give you an example of the right being anti-free speech. So one of the issues that, that has happened over the last few weeks is that some tech companies have banned, like, neo-Nazis from being on their servers. Or Google, of course, kicked out that kid who wrote the Google memo. Uh, YouTube has will not sell ads on some content and actually will ban certain people. So it's Patreon, so of others. And what is the right's response to that? It was not an intellectual philosophical argument about the virtue of free speech and an, op and an open discussion in society. It was, we need to regulate Google. We need to break Google up. Indeed, the left and the right have united on one agenda item, which is, Let's attack Google. Let's go after Google. Let's break them up. Let's regulate them. Let's view them as a utility. Let's force them to have, to, to, to accept all opinions, YouTube and, and everybody else. So, uh, you know, this is a very, very scary place we find ourselves in um, because of, I think, the impotence of people and the right to defend free speech properly. Uh, I think they are defenders of free speech, uh, uh, David Rubin and a lot of the people that he has on his show. I, I strongly recommend the Rubin Report on YouTube. Look up Dave Rubin on YouTube. Uh, Rubin Report on YouTube, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was uh, he interviewed me. But the people he interviews are part of uh, the, the people trying to articulate an intellectual philosophical defense of free speech, which is so crucial today. All right, if you want in on the conversation about Antifa, if you have any theories about Antifa, if you know what needs to be done about Antifa, or if you want to talk about free speech, generally, 888-900-3393, 888-900-3393. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what uh, you have to say about Antifa. Have you been in any of these demonstrations? Okay, when we come back, I want to talk about 
what Antifa's done recently, Berkeley, Boston, other places. I want to talk about um, the media's response to Antifa, uh, which, which I think is interesting. And I want to talk about the ever-growing definition of fascism that Antifa relies on in order to sustain itself. All right, so uh, if you have anything to say about any of that, 888-900-3393. You're listening to your own book show on the Blaze Radio Network. We're here every Sunday from 11 and 1 Pacific time. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll talk to you right after this uh, break that's coming up. You won't hear traditional political views here. This is the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show. All right, so maybe the most important topic of our generation, of our time, will be free speech. Defending free speech, arguing for free speech, and crushing the arguments made by these lefties and, and by the right on this issue of free speech. You have to change the way people think about this issue. We have to. We have to uh, insist. Now, I'm not going to give you the whole philosophical argument here. Uh, I recommend, um, I, I have a number of uh, podcasts on this issue. You can look it up on the podcast app. You can also go to YouTube and look up Yaron Brook Free Speech. You'll find a lot of videos that I've done, talks that I've done. I'm going to be giving some talks in Europe um, this next month on free speech. Uh, those will be up on YouTube. And um, I also want to recommend Steve Simpson from the Ayn Rand Institute's book, Defending Free Speech. You can get it on Amazon. It's like six ninety five on a Kindle or paperback. It's definitely worth getting with essays about free speech. And and there's a lot more to come. Look up on the Iron Institute website. We have a lot of information about free speech. But the essential argument is this, in my view. And this is why it's hard because some of the preconditions for this argument don't exist in our culture. Our culture we have to understand that human survival, human flourishing depends on the free exercise of the human mind. Reason is man's basic means of survival. It is by means by which we survive and thrive and flourish on this earth. It's by use of our mind. It's by use of our reason. It's our thinking capabilities. Right? <laughs> I hope that's obvious. I, it, it isn't. I know it isn't. To most people, it isn't. To 90% of people, maybe it isn't. Now, what is the product of thinking? The product of thinking is, is, is some kind of action. And one of those actions, one of the most important actions, is speaking, writing, conveying the content of your thought. It's, it's letting the world know. And if you have, if, if, if thinking is so important, we must protect it. And then we must protect the products of that thought. The products of the thought must be protected because otherwise people won't do the thinking. They won't do the thinking. If you can't write, if, you know, it's not a surprise that there are more scientists once science is freed up from religious authoritarianism 
than there was during the period where the Catholic Church controlled everything. And, and if you were a scientist and discovered something new, there was the threat of being burnt at the stake. So when you free the human mind up, more thinking gets done, more truth gets discovered, and the world is a better place for individuals, for human beings. So we, you have to respect thinking, and you have to respect the product of thinking. And, the, you know, one product, the most important product of thinking is speech. It's the ability to convey that thinking to other people, to teach, to educate. To, and some of the thinking is really, really bad. Some of it's really, really stupid. We've heard a lot of really, really stupid things in the last few weeks. But who gets to decide what is the good speech and what is the bad speech? The government? People with guns? We know how that ends. You have to allow for the junk, for the garbage, for the offensive, for the stupid, in order to get to the truth. In order to get to the truth. And some of us will never know what is true, what is not, when somebody says it today, because it's not our field, it's not our profession. Oh, you know, we just, we're just ignorant. We just don't know. So who gets a judge? Well, in the end of the day, the market does. We do. But we don't have the ability to shut people up. We shouldn't have the ability to shut people up. If I don't like what you're saying, if I think it's untrue, I think it's false, I shouldn't have the ability to silence you. And if we do, then the future is over. Then we slowly decline into authoritarianism, into the rule by those who get to decide what is true and what is not, what is allowed and what is not, what can be spoken and what cannot, what can be thought and what cannot. But that's the world Antifa wants to take us in. And it is, it is, they're out there protecting, protecting what they view as, right? You know, protecting us from, uh, from fascists. But this is the problem Antifa faces. Well, it doesn't really, it's not a real problem. Problem Antifa has is that they're not that many neo-Nazis. And they're not that many white supremacists. They're not that many fascists, explicit fascists in America today. Not real fascists, fascists who believe in authoritarian government and the silencing of speech and the and a, a police states and and uh, you know control over the entire economy. They're not that many real fascists. They're quite a, they're too many for my liking, and they're more than probably most people think. But they're not that many. But Antifa doesn't view those people as fascists. Antifa is not interested in a dictionary definition of fascism. Antifa is not interested in an historical definition of fascism. Antifa is not interested in knowledge. They're interested in emotion. And to them, a fascist is anybody they disagree with. Anybody that is outside of the leftist norm. Anybody outside of what they've been taught is acceptable. Anything outside of convention. Leftist academic convention. So, uh, and, and, you know, uh, there was a, a good article. I don't agree with all of it, but there were pieces of it. Holman Jenkins wrote a good article about this um, if a couple of, I guess about a week ago, a week and a half ago. Uh, the article is called The Great Nazi Scare of 2017. 
the great Nazi scares of 2017. Now, I don't agree with some of what he writes, but a lot of what he writes is interesting. He's one of my favorite authors generally. He writes for the Wall Street Journal two, three times a week. And he writes, you know, there, since there's a shortage, then uh, you become, if, if, if you oppose uh, raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, you're a fascist. If you don't think climate change is going to be catastrophic, you're a racist. If, um, if you believe capitalism is a good system, you're a racist and a fascist. So anything, any position you take, which is not leftist, which is not borderline socialist, which is not, um, you know, on, on somewhere on the left spectrum of economic issues, let's say, because the right left spectrum is useless when it comes to a lot of these issues. Anywhere on that side, right, you're immediately, if you're not on that side, you're immediately branded a racist and a fascist. And, you know, so if you're tough on foreign policy, this is another one. If you say the kind of things I said earlier in the show about North Korea, you're obviously a racist and a fascist. If you take positions, if you take a position about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like you're pro-Israel because it's a civilized country, then you're a fascist and a racist. Now, I know this because I've been a target of this, right? So I appeared at Exeter University to give a talk on free speech, of all things. What's there to give a talk on free speech. And because I've written about, you know, uh, that Israel's a good country, because I've written pro-American uh, stuff um, and, and pro-individual rights stuff, and because I'm pro-capitalist, I was immediately branded a racist and a fascist. And my event, they try to shut it down. And indeed, for weeks afterwards on Twitter, they constantly attacked everything that I say. As though he's just a racist and a fascist. Why? Because I hold views that are not part of this leftist, you know, mainstream. And Antifa is there to protect the conventional leftist view. All right. Uh, when we come back, we'll kind of wrap up uh, the show. But uh, before we do that, we have to take this, uh, this break. You're listening to the Iran Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Yaron Brook Show, the Blaze Radio Network. We're talking about Antifa, and uh, Antifa's not interested in going after fascists, real fascists. Antifa's interested in going after anybody who disagrees with them. Antifa's interested in violence, and you could see that in Boston. I, I don't know if you saw pictures of the demonstration in Boston. Anybody who was, I don't know, a Trump supporter or anybody who argued with them got beaten up. And when they ran out of people to beat up, they, they started uh, throwing rocks and bottles full of urine at the police. So Antifa's not interested in, in real fascists. That, that, that is not what they're about. They're interested in violence. They're interested in destruction. And they target at the end of the day is the police. That's what they really hate. Because it's not that Antifa are communists. People love to throw out communists and neo-Marxism neo and stuff like that. But these people are much worse than communists. 
They're much worse than Marxists because they don't believe in anything. They're nihilists. They are nihilists. They're anarchists. They want to destroy for the sake of destroying. They want, you know, they want all police gone so that they can have and get their kicks without anybody stopping them. They are much more, you know, corrupt intellectually than a communist. Communist is about as corrupt intellectually as you can get. An ideology that's responsible for the death of over 100 million people. These people are worse. They would negate all, everything. They have no ideology, no vision. They are militant. They're violent. They want to destroy. They want to knock down. They want to break stuff. That's all they care about. And they can't be reasoned with. They can't be, you can't discuss anything with them, right? In Berkeley, they, again, they were just beating people up. Again, if you expressed an opposing position. I mean, Ben Shapiro is no fascist. You might disagree with him. I disagree with him on a lot of things. But he's not a fascist. So Antifa is not about fascism. Antifa is about using violence to silence and ultimately control all those who you disagree with. And it's not for anything. They're not for an agenda. At least with the communists, you'd say, look, communists, you know, it's a bad system. It doesn't work. These guys don't want a system. They just want the entire focus. Everything about them is driven by hate and destruction. It's not geared towards establishing a dictatorship like in North Korea. I mean, that is the outcome, but it's not what they dream about. They don't dream about some utopia in which the proletarian all commune spiritually and, and, and work hard to, 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 you know, enhance human life, which is kind of the ridiculous notion of a communist utopia. No, they don't care about any of that. Indeed, I wouldn't be surprised if, if these guys would, would start killing commies if, if, uh, if communism was a thing. Communism is not a thing. What's a thing is nihilism. That's the thing. It's, it's just a pure joy in destroying stuff. And, the, and it's so, it, it, such a deep corruption, such a deep, deep corruption, such a deep, deep darkness in their soul, and such a blindness to values. And that darkness in the soul is, is, is an anti-value darkness, an anti-value orientation, right? That's, at the end, what they are. Right? Now, again, people get caught up in this, and I'm sure there's some innocent people there who are just, you know, having fun, as if burning, beating people up is fun. It's not. They are morally culpable and morally responsible. But some of them, you know, might grow out of it. But these are bad people. These are bad people. And, and they need to be pointed out. And one of the great evils of the world in which we live today is that the media is culpable here because the media says nothing about them. They don't talk about them. You know, again, once in a while you'll get a good article like in Atlantic about the rise of the violent left. Now, it's true, as the New York Times keeps pointing out, they haven't killed that many people. They've only killed some. Some is enough. 
And if you embolden them, as the New York Times is constantly doing, by allowing people on their pages to defend them, then they will kill people. It's just a matter of time. They will grow more violent, and they will kill more, and they will silence more. So the media here is culpable by not reporting. How much did you see about Boston and about Berkeley? Some, but with no judgment. Imagine if those were uh, uh, racists doing the same kind of damage. The media would have been all over the story, and they would have been condemning it left and right. But when it's Antifa, nobody says a word. When it's the left, nobody says a word. And partially because certainly the left, but even the right today, have no philosophical, intellectual arguments about the fundamental issue that Antifa is bringing out. How do you address speech when it is offensive? So at the end of the day, the end of the day, I still believe that this is a philosophical battle. This is an intellectual battle. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if the police actually protected us and they better start doing that. But we will not win. We cannot win unless we launch a free speech offensive, a philosophical offensive, an intellectual offensive, and one grounded on the value of reason, on the virtue of rationality. Any defense short of that will fail, and the Antifas of the world will win. All right, we will win, though. We're going to launch that offensive. You're listening to your own book show. We're here on the Blaze Radio Network every Sunday from 11 to 1, uh, 11 and 1 Pacific Time and uh, thanks for listening Applying the principles of rational self-interest and individual rights on your radio It's the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network